And I think if you don't understand your history well, you can't have a future. It's as simple as that. And this is why we're still stumbling and things have not moved forward because we never really understood what happened or reconciled with that. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Three years ago, an explosion tore through the center of Beirut. It killed more than 200 people, left 300,000 homeless, and affected the lives of millions. Since then, no one has been held accountable for the explosion, and the government's investigation has been suspended. This week on Babel, I'm joined by Lebanese journalist Dalal Mawad to talk about her new book, All She Lost, which weaves together Lebanese women's stories as they grapple with the explosion, its aftermath, and the underlying pathologies that contributed to Lebanon's troubles. We talk about her book, why she centered her book on women's narratives, and how she struggles with her own complex feelings about her home. Then I continue the conversation with Will Todman and Leah Hickert, discussing women's stories and how they've played into revolutions and movements of change throughout the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dalal Mouawad is an independent, award-winning Lebanese journalist based in Paris. She is the author of All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation, and The Women Who Survive. Dalal, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me, John. So tell us about the August 4th, 2020 Beirut port explosion that is at the center of your book. Well, this is a day that changed every Lebanese life forever. It changed my life. It's a gruesome and dreadful day that really, to this day, three years on, that I hate to remember. That day was just a normal August day in in Lebanon in the sense that we'd already been reeling under an unprecedented economic crisis. There was COVID just like anywhere else around the world. And so I was working from home because I was a reporter for the Associated Press. And I always say that because of the pandemic and working from home, my life was saved because basically our offices are in downtown Beirut. The next morning when I went there, there was no roof anymore above my desk. I don't live in Beirut. As I describe in the book, I live on the outskirts. I did hear that explosion. So to take you back... At about 6.05 p.m., and I remember hearing this sound that was familiar. It sounded like Israeli jets. There were a lot of Israeli jets flying over Lebanon and Beirut that summer. There was like a whoosh sound. That's very, very familiar. And then all of a sudden, the loudest explosion I'd ever heard in my life. And, you know, I'm 38. I was born in the Civil War. I've been through... Israeli wars on Lebanon, bouts of violence, political assassinations. I was in Beirut when Hariri was killed. So it was like nothing I'd had heard before. And I thought there was an airstrike next to my house. That's what everyone thought. And it was only many hours later that I realized that it was at the port of Beirut. And not until the next day when I drove very early to Beirut and by the port that I realized the magnitude of the destruction and the devastation. And there had been a huge deposit of ammonium nitrate, which somehow caught on fire. People thought it was fireworks. And then suddenly there was this massive explosion that 
killed almost 200 people, that leveled large parts of downtown Beirut and shattered windows throughout a large part of the city. And yet you write that this book is about women and for women. It doesn't really sound like a women-oriented topic. What do you mean it's about women and for women? So this is the story of the Beirut blast in Lebanon's financial and economic collapse, and I would also say political collapse, but told through women's stories. So when you read the book, it's all short women's stories. What brings them together is that they're all survivors of the August 4th explosion. But really, their stories transcend that day. And these stories come together to tell you what's happened in Lebanon in the past four years and also the past few decades, because a lot of the women also took me back to the civil war. I wanted, you know, this history to be told by women, because women in Lebanon and the Arab world, and I think in most of the world, don't get to tell history from their perspective. They don't get to write history. History is not written from the perspective of women. And when I was reporting in Lebanon in my past decade or so reporting on the Middle East, women were the most powerful storytellers, no matter where I was, whether it's Iraq or Syria or Lebanon. And it's because they rarely have the platform to speak and to tell their stories. They rarely have that safe space. And this is what I wanted to give them. I wanted to give them a safe space where they would talk about their stories. And these are very, very personal stories with a lot of personal details. And they encompass, as you've probably witnessed reading this, a lot of women-related themes. And John, none of it was on purpose. It all came out naturally while I was discussing the Beirut explosion and Lebanon's collapse with these women. They had started talking about domestic violence, about unfair laws that discriminated against them, the burden of the economic crisis on them, custody issues, etc. So this book also tells you about the condition of women in Lebanon's modern history. I was really struck by more than one passage, but let me read this one. You said, I had a privileged life growing up there. On the other hand, I was also in an abusive relationship with my country that was hard to break away from. I've never heard of somebody talking about being in an abusive relationship with one's homeland, and I'm wondering how you came to think of it that way. It really is that, because when you think of it, you love your homeland, you love your country so much, and you fight for it because you love it so much. But you feel like you give Lebanon so much throughout your life, whether on a personal basis or through a career, having to fight so many fights on a daily basis. And it doesn't give you much in return. Not only that, it takes away so much from you. It takes away your freedom. It takes away your sense of security. It takes away your rights as a citizen, as a woman. It takes away people you love. It takes away your sense of stability, your ability to plan anything. It's not easy living in Lebanon. And yes, it is abusive because you know that this is not a normal life when you're there. You know that you can get so much more living abroad in terms of rights and quality of life and stability and security. And you don't have that. And yet you're attached, you love your country, and it's not easy to detach. And to this day, although I've left Lebanon and I'm living abroad, I would say that this relationship is kind of still there. I didn't break free completely 
I still go back and it's very disturbing because you go back and a lot of Lebanese say you don't identify anymore with the country and how it is. But then abroad, you also don't feel like you identify. I feel like my sense of home is lost. I don't know where home is anymore. And my identity is made of these different places and these different experiences. It's not one place. It's not one home. And it's just not easy. It's not easy having to leave. I know it was a personal choice to leave. And a lot of Lebanese decided to leave in the past few years. We're talking about the fifth mass wave of migration out of Lebanon. But we feel like we've been forced as if we had no choice because of that daily abuse. You don't have any dignity living there. You have no rights. You don't know when you will die. I was privileged economically and even socially. But still, I was lacking a lot of rights as women and as a citizen. And that's abuse to me. Let me ask what may be a hard question. You moved to Paris shortly after the Beirut port explosion. Do you consider yourself to be in exile? I've been attacked for using that word and saying, oh, are you going to say next you're a refugee? I'm far from that, of course. But as I said, I feel like I was forced to leave because I had no choice. I have a My daughter was four and I thought, oh my God, I managed to give her the trauma that, you know, I've inherited from my parents and my grandparents living in Lebanon and the Middle East. And I've managed to have her be part of these cycles of violence, endless cycles of violence. So I need to break that and to get out. If I stay there, I can't protect my daughter. There are stories in this book of mothers who tried to protect their children during the civil war and then they ended up dying on August 4th. You feel like you can't protect your children. And if something happens to them, I know that something might happen here, but then there's justice, there's accountability. In Lebanon, you just die and literally no one cares. Look at the families of the victims of the Beirut explosion. Three years on, the local investigations going nowhere. No one has been held accountable. So yeah, I feel like I was forced to flee because I couldn't bear, you know, the responsibility of something happening one day to my child. And I didn't want her, as I said earlier, to go through these cycles of violence again and again. I had to break that cycle. And the only way to break it is to leave and to get out of Lebanon and the Middle East. And yet your husband remains in Lebanon. You bring your daughter to Lebanon for summers to acculturate. She also, it sounds like, is feeling torn between. Yes, unfortunately, although she's very young, it's because our family had to be torn apart. My husband had to stay behind because he has a company there and we couldn't afford both of us like moving here and starting from scratch. It goes back to this conflicted relationship that I have with Lebanon, that I want her to have a Lebanese identity. I want her to go back and to know her origins and her roots and to spend summers there and to see my parents who are still there. Lebanon is part of her identity and will always be, and I don't want to deny that. But I also had to bring her here to protect her. I was just thinking today, I'm glad she's here. She's going to school. She doesn't have to worry about maybe war happening Tomorrow, because now with what's going on in Israel, with the shelling in the south of Lebanon, we don't know if we'll be uh, dragged into another war. So I don't want my kid to have to worry about that. I had to go through this, and most Lebanese of my generation had to go through this. And I don't want to anymore. You quote a woman in the book saying, It's too late for me. I have no time left to wait. 
I cannot give any more. I need to take. I gave everything I had. Now I am tired and I need people to look after me and help me. If Lebanon were to speak, I thought to myself, it would utter similar words. Do you see that as a particularly feminine sentiment? It is feminine and it is not. I think this is how the Lebanese feel. This is a quote from a woman who's 86 year old at the end of the book and who's lived through the glorious days of Lebanon all the way to its demise. And she was telling me how as an 86-year-old with no pension fund, with no support, having lost her savings in the banks, just like all the Lebanese, she was really struggling. And when I heard her say that, I felt like this could totally be something that every Lebanese would say, but also that Lebanon would be saying as a country. It's a country that's drained. It's unable to stand on its feet today. And no one is helping Lebanon. Its politicians are not doing anything. The international community has turned a blind eye for various reasons. One of them is the political class, but then you don't understand because they still deal with them and want them to be there. This is very much the state of Lebanon today and the time that we're wasting since 2019, since the financial crisis started. And the ongoing political vacuum that's ongoing is just making things worse and making Lebanon more vulnerable every day. To me, it's a failed state. Some people say it's not there yet. To me, Lebanon is a failed state today. And I don't know if it's reached the bottom of the abyss. It seems to me that abyss is bottomless. A lot of people who've witnessed and survived the civil war and a lot of these women in the book they talk about, it had never seen Lebanon the way it is today. Things are very bad and including the explosion, it's like nothing they had seen during the civil war. You talk about how the explosion and its aftermath was an inflection point for you and for your relationship with Lebanon. Looking back, do you think the country had an inflection point? Was it the Civil War? Was it before the Civil War? I mean, you recount a whole series of missteps the country has fallen into. I don't know if it's an inflection point, but the Beirut blast is definitely a turning point in Lebanon's history. For a lot of Lebanese, there's a before and after August 4th. A lot of Lebanese lost a lot on that day. And when I say by they lost a lot, I don't just mean physically. A lot of people lost loved ones. They lost their homes. They were injured. But there's a sense of safety and security. There's a sense of belonging that is completely gone. And I think that that day changed the face of, of Beirut and, as I said, changed our lives. I would say the civil war has played a big role, of course. I mean, starting 75, Lebanon looked very different from what it was in the so-called glorious days of the 50s and the 60s. Although, as I mentioned in the book, 50s and the 60s were not as perfect as people thought they were. I think Lebanon's history was affected, like a lot of Arab countries, by the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. A lot of what happened later was related to that conflict and still is to this day. I think that's an inflection point in our history. But definitely the civil war was also like a turning point and change of the country. And in my personal opinion, the civil war never ended. And there was just like a truth. But on the ground, the grievances are still there. The issues are still there. It's the politicians who gave themselves amnesty and reconciled, but people never really reconciled. 
And the fact that we're not over the civil war is very clear in my book, because when I went and met these women to talk about the Beirut blast, many of them just wanted to talk about the civil war. And they took me back to that. This is where you see that people have not healed. They have not made peace with those years and with the violence during the war. And remarkably, you write that Lebanon's history books end in 1943 and haven't been updated. I mean, that must have a profound impact just on how people understand their role in the country. Yes, it has an impact on how you understand your history, how you understand your identity, your place in the country and in the region. You have many generations who were not educated or were educated on what happened during the Civil War, but hearing stories from their parents or from movies or reading books that were not necessarily balanced, maybe. There was never any work done on collective memoir after the Civil War. And this is why I wanted to write this book, because it's one way of documenting what happened on August 4th in the past four years, because the financial crisis is also a crime, in my opinion. And documenting that from the perspective of ordinary citizens, in this case, women, because the civil war, not enough similar documentation was done. And it's still to this day told from the perspective of politicians and political parties, winners and men, you know, experts and historians who have their biases. And I think if you don't understand your history well, you can't have a future. It's as simple as that. And this is why we're still stumbling and things have not moved forward because we never really understood what happened or reconciled with that. In terms of the reporting, the historical record you're contributing to, there are a lot of very graphic scenes in your book that must have been very hard to report on, to listen to. Did you have any kind of preparation for that kind of work? Listen, John, I covered conflicts. I've covered survivors of, you know, violence and gender-based violence and sexual violence. I had some kind of training. But the Beirut blast was something that I was never prepared for. And I always say it's the hardest assignment I've ever done as a journalist because it felt so personal. And I could not keep that distance with a story that I usually keep with other stories that I report on. That's how Lebanon felt the past Four years and why I also wanted to leave is because, you know, I'd be working on a story that was too emotional and it felt too personal because the whole situation was affecting me, was affecting my family, people that I love, whether it's the financial crisis or the Beirut explosion. So it was hard. It was very hard to report on that. And sitting with these women for very long hours, many days, did get to me, of course. I was never prepared for that. I was never prepared for what I reported on during the explosion and the aftermath. You're never prepared for, for such things. You just learn how to cope. So, as you say, some of what you're reporting on is universal things you have seen in other parts of the Arab world, perhaps other parts of the world. What parts of this story do you think are very unique to Lebanon? That's a tough question because, you know, sectarianism reverberates in other countries. Women's rights is the same, I would say. I've seen that in other Arab countries. I had this conversation with, with my editor, whether this was very Lebanon-specific or it's something that you would see in other countries, including you know Iran, Iraq, Syria. 
I think a lot of it is common to the Arab world, unfortunately, where there's impunity and lack of justice and accountability. And this is our main problem. In Lebanon, no one really has ever been held accountable in terms of like senior officials or politicians for crimes they've they've committed. And I don't know if that's the case in other Arab countries. I know there's prevalent impunity in many Arab countries, but it seems to me like in Lebanon, really, there's no sense of justice at all. I can barely name a politician who's gone to jail. There was one after the civil war and it was for political reasons or like major trials or, you know, anyone apologizing or being held accountable. I can't. And that to me is what's most striking about Lebanon and our history is this impunity and lack of justice, which means that history just repeats itself again and again. Dilan Ma'oud is the author of All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation, and The Women Who Survived. Dilan, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. In her book, Dilal Mawad does something really interesting because she presents a surprising issue in a gendered, innovative way. She looks at the Beirut port explosion and Lebanon civil war through a gendered lens. Elsewhere in the region, women have featured much more prominently in movements of social change or economic or political change. Why have women's stories featured so prominently in some revolutionary movements or moments of change, such as in Iran, but not so much in something like what's going on in Lebanon? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And and I actually think in Iran... It's relatively recent that women's stories and women's voices have become such a prominent piece of the story. Perhaps that's because a lot of leaders in Iran are men and a lot of the main voices that shape the kind of media narrative in Iran are men. But I do think the early framing of the movement that has erupted in Iran over the last year really made women the center of it. Even from the slogan of Zan Zendegi Azadi, women, life, freedom, that really does center women and women's freedoms at the heart of the movement. And maybe why the sort of the gender lens has become so prominent in Iran is because the mandatory hijab has become a symbol of the Iranian regime. And of course, there are lots of ways in which Women have fewer freedoms and rights than men in other ways in Iran when it comes to marriage, custody, inheritance, things like that. But the hijab is a very clear symbol that I think is easy to understand for people you know, around the world. And maybe that symbol has been lacking somewhere like Lebanon. Lebanon has a more fragmented system with different communities And women in those communities have different degrees of social freedoms. Of course, they still have, you know, limited freedoms under the law. But I remember as an 18-year-old going to Lebanon for the first time, being surprised to see, you know, women in a niqab and women in a bikini lying next to each other on the beach. That's a really superficial understanding of, of women's rights in Lebanon. But it's striking and it's striking to people who aren't familiar with the country and before having studied it. But that's not to say that women haven't actually been at the forefront of the movement in Lebanon. When we think of the 2019 revolution, we often think back and think, oh, the WhatsApp tax. But when you look at who was actually out on the streets at the early stages, 
a lot of it was women, and it was women specifically protesting the nationality law in Lebanon, which Dalal mentioned. And maybe the reason we don't remember that movement as a predominantly women's movement is that the demands grew greater as the movement went on. It became about overthrowing the whole system, the sectarian system. There were also aspects of the movement that were quite novel. The fact that people from all different sectarian groups joined these protests, I think that became a focus of media attention rather than the fact that it was women who were you know, playing a big part in starting these roles and these protests. So I do think part of it is how the media picks up on it and what the media picks up on as a distinguishing feature. And it's interesting that in Iran, it has focused so much on women. I think both Iran and arguably in Saudi Arabia, the issue of constraints on women is so baked into the system, and it's a unitary system. One of the challenges you have in Lebanon, and one of the challenges to moving forward toward change in Lebanon, is you have 18 different religious communities, as your book talks about 15 different sets of laws that constrain women's behavior because the Catholics have one, the Maronites have another, the Shia have a third, and so on. And rather than creating a sort of common basis, as you had with women in Saudi Arabia, wanted a whole set of freedoms that the most visible of which was driving, but certainly the reforms in Saudi Arabia aren't limited to women driving. In Iran, it's not limited to veiling, but veiling is one of the issues, that there's a way in which you don't have a single vantage point in a country like Lebanon, and that changes it. What's interesting is that this book points out, the interview points out, that there are ways that women come together, that women do get united, that this is a way to overcome the fracturing of Lebanese society is by using a gender lens, whereas in other circumstances, the gender lens doesn't give you as much because in some ways, gender is baked into the way the system works because the system is deeply tied into patriarchy. I think that's interesting when you discuss different vantage points, because women have been at the forefront of so many social movements, not only in the Middle East, but around the world. They're often involved in the coordination and mobilization of social movements. They're involved in boycotts. There's a way in which women's mobilization isn't something that people in the West see. We're sort of used to guys in beards shaking their fist in the streets. But in terms of mobilization of people feeling like they're part of something, there are ways that, that things in women's spheres can be profoundly effective in knitting together a society to either support something or oppose something. I agree. And I think that women's stories are really being expressed beautifully in Dalal Mawad's book. So something else she's trying to do in her book is promote this idea of a collective memory, something that's very much lacking in Lebanon. How has an absence of collective memory elsewhere in the region led to contemporary conflicts and social developments? Well, I think there's a combination of collective memory and selective memory. In many cases, states have instrumentalized selective memory. I've certainly saw this in Egypt. Egypt's own history of the wars it's fought with Israel is extremely selective. And I think groups instrumentalize memory. Governments instrumentalize memory. There's something useful in getting everybody on the same page. And to the extent you can resolve tensions in society, 
memory can be a really effective way to overcome divisions and differences. In Lebanon, the, the persistent refusal to create a collective memory, I think, contributes to the lack of accountability, contributes to the fact that, that people don't feel they share a common identity, a common set of interests, and that you had a, a protest movement, Libnani Wabes, Lebanese, and that's it. Not Lebanese Maronite and Lebanese Catholic and Lebanese Greek Orthodox and Melkite and all those things. There is a certain straining in Lebanon to have a shared identity, but there are also forces in Lebanon who feel threatened by a shared identity, who feel it's very important to maintain these individual identities. My sense is this is beginning to change as Lebanese try to confront the consequences of the economic breakdown, which a lot of Lebanese attribute to the corruption that the sectarian system has helped create and embed in Lebanese society. But it's a long and hard slog to create an alternative leadership system when the people in the current leadership system have so much of a stake in perpetuating what has been Lebanon's history for now almost a century. And they have various tools to try and help form different selective memories, or I, I like that term. Certainly, you know, educational systems are one of those. And then the lack of uh, common understanding in, in textbooks is, you know, a way of preventing a formation of collective memory. Also, museums, I think, are often used to this effect and trying to understand a common sense of recent history. When I think about the absence of collective memory, most recently, I, I suppose I think of some of the reinterpretations of authoritarian leaders in the region. In Iraq, this is certainly happening with Saddam Hussein. We, a few years ago, we came across a story in the program that was a university in southern Iraq, which is a Shia majority, you know, part of the country. And students at a graduation ceremony had played the Iraqi anthem that is associated with Saddam Hussein. And that was just one, you know, piece of evidence of, of this sort of nostalgia for Saddam, who many Shia communities really associate with repression and other Iraqi communities as, as well, Kurds in particular. I saw this just last month in Tunisia with Ben Ali and, you know, speaking to some Tunisians who were saying, you know, actually under Ben Ali, things weren't so bad. And, you know, maybe we didn't have freedom of speech, but we did have these other freedoms. And certainly that plays into the rhetoric of President Qais Saeed. There are other Tunisians, though, of course, particularly those affiliated with the Nahda and the Islamist uh, parties, who have a very different memory of the Ben Ali era. And it's not, you know, unique to the Middle East that these histories should be contested and reinterpreted and whatnot. But it is striking, I think, at the moment, the degree to which there are disparities there. And, you know, as you said, it, it does play into current politics. It shapes how people think about the current leadership of those countries. And just to add one point, you know, I think one of America's strengths is the sense that we are united by our history and you can identify with the ideology and have a place in that history. A lot of countries don't have that advantage. There's a sense of who the real citizens are. 
I think in many ways, the United States has been moving away from that. You certainly, with some white identity groups, you have some of this. But I think the majority view in the United States is everybody has a place here because we're united by both a history and an ideology. For a lot of countries in the Middle East, there's a single history and you're either on the right side of it or the wrong side of it. And people try to use that history to advance their own cause and disadvantage others. What's a fringe phenomenon here is a mainstream phenomenon in a lot of the Middle East, I think to their disadvantage and weakness. It will be interesting to see with the ever-increasing interconnectedness of the world through social media and internet access, if these selective memories become challenged or if they are no longer as politicized as before. It's hard for me to remember a lot of times when social media helped people really understand history. And maybe that's just because I'm bitter for having studied for a PhD in history. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. Thank you both for joining me. Thank Thank you, Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.